All right, we are in Jonah. So we march through the minor prophets. Uh, Pastor and author James Montgomery Boyce uh, presents the following scenario, which helps us um, prepare our hearts for what we're going to look at today in Jonah. Imagine for a moment that you are a Jew living in New York during World War II. And you sense strongly that God is calling you, um, that you need to go to Berlin and share the gospel with Nazi Germany. That you are to go to the people who hate and despise your people, who are actively exterminating your people. And instead of joining in the war against them, to stop them, instead of focusing immediately on rescuing your fellow people, instead of joining in the plot to kill Hitler and stop this, your first focus is sharing the good news of God's love in Jesus to the Nazis. And so you go, and uh, you begin by warning them that there is a God um, that they have sinned against, that their sin is not just against humanity, it is of course that, but they have ultimately sinned against their creator God, and that God will hold them accountable, and judge them for this. That part might be uh, not too hard for you to say. But then you also have to give the invitation and tell them of God's love for sinners such as themselves, even for sinners such as themselves, and his blood-bought grace, and invite them to repent and experience that grace and experience God's blessings. This part would certainly be much harder to do. But I think it's still hard for us to put ourselves in this position. Uh, From kind of our distant, dispassionate vantage point, it's hard for us to grasp the difficulty that we would have in this situation. We might think, oh, like how powerful and inspiring would that be for, for a Jew to go to Nazi Germany and to share the gospel and to see the, to see these people come to faith. But I think it would be a very different experience actually living that out. Uh, It would likely be, we would likely have a very difficult time with these people being offered God's grace. And more than that, we would have a very difficult time if they were receptive towards it. And then now what? We're supposed to call them brothers and sisters in, in Christ. We're supposed to want good for them. We're supposed to pray for them. Kind of like the older brother in the prodigal son parable. Um, we would likely find ourselves offended by God's grace to these people. God, you're going to welcome these people? Not only that, you're going to like delight in them and extend blessings to them and rejoice over them? Again, this gets at the heart of the book of Jonah. Um, The book of Jonah forces us to examine our own restricted and ungrateful hearts in light of God's lavish and generous, extravagant and open heart. Like Jonah, we are oftentimes great with God's mercy when it's towards us, but when he shows it to that particular person or those particular people, our enemies or those, that team, that side, we... That's when we really, what we believe about God's grace is really exposed. 
and we realize how we fail to understand how gracious his grace really is. The book of Jonah helps us work through this. So let's get into, into this. Jonah is another short book, just four chapters. We're going to walk through it in order. We're not going to read all of it, but we are going to read a good chunk of it. And just one thing to note up front before we get into Jonah, um, as you probably know, there are not just one, but numerous miraculous supernatural um, things that happen in the book of Jonah. Uh, not just Jonah getting swallowed and then um, surviving for three days in, in this great fish. There's also a plant that grows up real quickly in a day and then dies. Uh, God causes a storm to come and then he calms the storm. And then these Ninevites uh, immediately respond in repentance, which is, seems crazy. Um, and so we might wonder, and many have wondered, if these are actual historical events, or is this just, you know, some scholars, scholars just suggest that this is more like a parable meant to teach some lessons. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but just give you three reasons for taking Jonah as actual history. Uh, one is that it reads most naturally as a history. There's nothing in it that would lead us to believe that it's meant to just be a parable that is any other genre or style than just historical narrative. Secondly, of course, miraculous events are not limited to the book of Jonah in the Bible. Miraculous events happen throughout the Bible. Um, there's nothing inconsistent with who God is presented to be in the Bible and miraculous supernatural events. Uh, this is part and parcel of God intervening in his world. But thirdly, and most significantly, uh, Jesus speaks of Jonah and the events of the book of Jonah as historical events. So in Matthew, it's repeated in a couple other gospels, but in Matthew 12, it says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, Jesus said, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, where Jonah is sent to, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So Jesus speaks as the men of Nineveh, as real historical people who really did repent at Jonah's preaching and who will really rise up and judge this other generation. And then he likens his own death and resurrection to the time that Jonah apparently really did spend in the great fish. So, if we were to take Jesus at his word, it seems that we must also take the story of Jonah as a real account of historical events. Um, God is active within time and space. He's providentially ordering the fish or whales, the sea, the wind and the waves, people uh, for his purposes. Nothing is too hard for him. Okay. All right, let's start at the beginning. First three verses, Jonah 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. So to feel the weight of what's going on here and of Jonah's call, we have to understand a little bit about Nineveh 
and the Ninevites. Uh, Nineveh was a great city of the Assyrians. Uh, it would later become the, the, the capital of their empire. Uh, the Assyrians were a major empire during this time, and they had recently expanded into Israelite territory, and they had demanded uh, tribute be paid to them from the Israelites and, and their kings. Um, needless to say, they were not very well liked by the Israelites. And, and you have to remember, this is a time in history, as much of history has been, where your options are as a people or a nation are conquer or get conquered, right? This is, if you read, the, if you read history much, you know that history is the history in large part of conquests, of a, a nation becoming strong and powerful and expanding, conquering, and subjecting other empires until they, for some reason, weaken and a stronger nation comes along and conquers them and then they take over. Uh, this is just how much of history has been. So as a people and a nation, you generally don't like the people around you, especially if they're stronger and more powerful and are beginning to take your land and demand tribute. More than that, within a generation of Jonah, the, uh, the Israelites are going to go be conquered and taken, to, taken into exile by the Assyrians. And so... The Assyrians, or the Ninevites' repentance at Jonah's preaching, um, will have not only the effect of sparing the Assyrians from God's judgment on them, but will, by their own survival at their repentance, will lead to them conquering the Israelites. So Jonah doesn't know this, of course, but um, the results of this are not good for Israel. More than that, these people are not just subjectively hated by Israel or despised. They are objectively evil, as the text says. So God says, their evil has come up before me. Uh, they later admit to being a violent people. And so for Jonah, imagine, put yourself in Jonah's position. Uh, these, these people are a threat and a danger on the personal level, on the national level, to your people. But objectively, they're also rightly deserving of God's judgment and wrath. They're an evil Violent people. So what is Jonah called to do? Well, bringing the message of God to those in rebellion against him always has two parts. First, Jonah is to call out against them. He is to warn them of God's coming judgment for their evil ways, uh, for the rejection of God, for their trust in themselves, in their own military might, for the refusal to acknowledge the God of heaven and earth. That's the first part. But Jonah knows that there's always another side to this message. Jonah knows that God's purpose in uh, revealing his holiness and his character and his perfections and, and God's purpose in warning of his judgments and his wrath isn't an end in itself, but is so that people would turn from their sin and their self-living and their self-worship and would turn and find his mercy and find him to be better. Um, I mean, if God was merely content to just let justice do, be justice and let, let things happen as they ought to, then why would he ever give these warnings in the first place? I mean, they're evil. Why not just bring judgment? Why send Jonah in the first place to warn them that they might be spared? And Jonah is not too fond of this possibility of them being spared. He later admits to being angry at God, as we'll see, for showing grace to the Ninevites. 
Uh, he, and he's so against this possibility happening, he knows that this might happen, that he, he goes in the opposite direction, away from the presence of the Lord. I imagine Jonah knew a good bit as a, about God, as a prophet of God, but here he neglects the, the, the critical truth that you can't run from God. The, the wonderful truths of, uh, that we find in Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, which Jonah seems to be trying to do, even there your hand shall lead me. Now, oftentimes, these, are a, these truths are a wonderful comfort to us, right? Uh, when we feel alone, uh, when we feel afraid, overlooked, lost, it's a greatly comforting thing to remind ourselves that God is with us. That we can't flee from his presence, that he, he follows us wherever we go, that he's leading wherever we go, uh, that his spirit is with us. He's as near to us as he can get. And yet in our attempts to ignore God and rule our own lives and go our own way, this is a truth that we want to forget sometimes. We pretend like God is far away, that he doesn't see, that he doesn't know, that he doesn't care. So we can understand Jonah in this. But not only does Jonah not escape God's presence, he does not and cannot escape God's purposes for him. And so verse 4, the Lord, Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. So the other sailors become terrified, and they begin to call on their various gods to save them. Uh, they throw all the cargo out. This, this is a very serious uh, situation. They throw all the cargo out to lighten the load and perhaps save them. They then decide to cast lots, to roll some dice, to see uh, whose fault this is. So they don't believe in the God of heaven and earth, but they do believe that gods are directing the affairs of the world and that bad things happen for a reason. So let's cast lots. In God's providence, even over random things like dice, the lot falls on Jonah and the sailors question him, why is this happening? What did you do that your God is causing this to happen? And Jonah fesses up. He says, well, I am a Jew, I'm a Hebrew, and I, um, that his God, he says his God is the Lord, Yahweh, the God of heaven who made the sea and dry land. And then he tells them that he is fleeing from this God, which at this point, they must have just been astounded like, at this point, their theology of God is probably better than his. Wait, so this is the God of heaven and earth, and you're fleeing. Like, where are you going to go? Unrepentant sin always makes us look foolish. When we commit ourselves to continuing in a way uh, away from God, and rather towards God, rather than coming in the light, and we just commit to our sin, it always makes us look foolish. It always makes us deny functionally some aspect of God. God can't see, God doesn't know, God doesn't care, God isn't good, God doesn't really love me. I know better than God what will make me happy. So the sailors must have thought, Jonah, do you, do you hear yourself here? It's not making sense. But aren't we the same so often? 
Do we hear ourselves? Do we think our, our bitterness and resentment and unforgiveness towards our brothers and sisters is really going to leave us in a better position than dealing with it, regardless of what God says about it? Do we think that following that lustful thought or intention is going to make us happier than following our Creator and trusting in His goodness? Do we think that rejecting God's self-revelation in Scripture uh, because He offends us on some point and leaves us in a position where we can create a better, more worthy, more good God? No, unrepentant sin makes us foolish. It makes us ignorant. It makes us deniers of reality. And it brings chaos and disorder. It brings a mighty tempest as it does here. And so Jonah is at the onset of this tempest. Jonah comes to his senses. He acknowledges that, yes, this is on me. This is happening because I am trying to run away from God. And he insists that they throw him off the ship. They don't want to do this. They don't want to be held, be held responsible for, for murder. But he insists. So they throw him off and the storm subsides. And this brings us to the most well-known part of Jonah. Verse 17 Chapter 1, verse 17, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, you kind of wish there was some other verses explaining this, right? Like, what kind of fish? The text just said it could be really any uh, sea creature. It could be a whale. Uh, how did he remain alive? We don't, we don't know. The text doesn't give us this. Uh, what we do know is that this fish, fish was actually a, a means of God rescuing Jonah, right? God is continuing God, his purposes. Uh, Jonah can't run away from God's presence or purposes, even when it means bringing a fish to swallow him and sustain him for three days. And then verse 2, we're told that Jonah turns to God in prayer. So he'd been running away from God. Now, finally, he turns to God in prayer. Uh, I'm going to read this whole prayer, chapter 2. I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed over me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. So, what Jonah is recognizing here is that he is ultimately not fighting against the wind and the waves, or the fish, or the sailors who threw him over, or just a chaotic world that is set against him. He is ultimately fighting against God. He says, your waves and your billows. This is not just random, 
I'm in a bad situation in this world. This is, it is God whom he ultimately must deal with because of his sin. And so what does he do? Well, he turns to God. Yes, it is God that is working against him because of his sin and, his, and, and rebellion, but it is also God who will relent and save him if only he would turn. And this is a foundational truth in Scripture. Whatever we are dealing with, whether the sins and uh, evil intentions of others against us, whether suffering and trials and pain and weaknesses of various kinds for various reasons, whether even our own sin and guilt and the consequences of, of our actions, whatever we're dealing with, at any time, we can turn to God and find him to be gracious and compassionate and welcoming and open and affectionate. Like Jonah, we may be running in the opposite direction, fleeing God's presence, refusing to acknowledge God's commands and God's authority, ignoring his nudging. Um, we can do this in outwardly blatant ways. We can do this in just in, in inner ways where we are just cold and dead in our hearts. We can do this by just pursuing an endless stream of distractions and diversions and comforts and pleasures only to deaden the voice of God. Numb the presence of God. But when we remember the Lord, as Jonah does, and turn to him, we find, as Jonah says, the hope of steadfast love. The hope of steadfast love. Uh, you've probably heard this term steadfast love quite a bit. Um, it's found, it, it, it translates the Hebrew word hesed, which is a very important word in the Old Testament. It translates, uh, used 245 times, most often to talk about God's overwhelming disposition and heart towards his people. Steadfast love. God is committed to showing faithfulness and mercy and kindness and, and love to all who come to him. And, and kind of the flip side of that is he, he announces that this is who he is and that knowledge, that promise is meant to motivate us to come in the first place. It's not like we don't know this about God and we just kind of have to guess and hope that he's merciful. No, he tells us that he's merciful and full of steadfast love so that we might turn and, and bank on that wherever we're at, whenever. So Jonah turns, he finds God's steadfast love and mercy, and he's rescued from the great fish. Chapter 3, verse 1. Then... The word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes. 
And he issued a proclamation and published throughout through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. There aren't very many biblical examples of such immediate and willing and broken-hearted repentance. And, and this is from a people, again, that know very little about, about the one true God. Um, but they do know instinctively that they are wicked. Um, they're not like taken aback at this, that the judgment might come on them. They know that they are a violent people and that that's not okay. Perhaps up until this point, they didn't really know what to do with that. They didn't know where to go with their guilt, with their sense of a moral standard that they didn't match up to. They didn't know who this was against. And so there's a grace, even in discovering that our sins are against a living being right? If our sense of guilt and wrongdoing has no relation to a personal being, if it's just a matter of impersonal karma or just a matter of a psychological problem that we have to work out in ourselves or a social problem, the problem's out there, it's all those other people who make me like this. Either way, it's entirely on us to deal with it. We can't, we can't appeal to anyone for help, for mercy. We have to learn better techniques. We have to push away all those negative voices. We have to change our definitions of morality. That's the problem. We have to try harder, etc. But ultimately, we have to save ourselves. This is how most people live. And this is how we are tempted to live as well. With some sense of moral standard that we must live up to, some sense that we're not doing a great job living up to that, and this overwhelming feeling that it's all on us to rectify the problem. And it's this never-ending rat race that we can't ever solve or complete. But if our sin is against a living being, and that living being delights to show mercy to all who come to him, delights to wipe, to, to make as white as snow, to, to cast sins as far away as the east is from the west to all those who would come to him. This is wonderful news. This is greatly freeing news. This is the good news. And this is who God is throughout scripture. And this is the truth about God that then gets crystal clear in Jesus. Um, the message of Jesus includes these two sides, as we've been seeing. The word of the cross, the gospel, is that our sins are real and really terrible. You know, Jesus didn't just come saying, it's okay, God loves you. Don't worry about your sin. Just minimize it. Pretend it's not there. Ignore it. No, the, on the one hand, the cross is, a, is this massive billboard showing how evil and damning sin really is. The cross calls out against us, just as Jonah was calling out against Nineveh. But of course, that's not all the cross does. 
The cross is also this great, massive billboard proclaiming the steadfast love of God, the kindness of God, the humble mercy of God, the willing sacrifice of God to do whatever it takes to draw people towards himself. And so the cross is this warning and invitation. Uh, Fail to heed this warning and you will find the judgment of God. But turn and grasp the mercy of God by faith and you will find the gentle and lowly heart of God and the uh, steady, uh, steadfast love of God. And, And every act and display of God's mercy in Scripture is grounded in the cross. The judgment that God spared the Ninevites here was experienced by Jesus on the cross. The judgment that God spares us, any of us, when we turn to him is experienced by Jesus on the cross. This is so that the perfect holiness and justice of God can be maintained. And it's so that sinners like you and I are, can be welcomed into God's presence with joy. Now, You've perhaps, you've probably heard all of this before, and perhaps you rejoice in this, and you celebrate this on a regular basis, and perhaps you, you want this for others, and you pray for and extend this offer of God's love to others. The real test, though, of how well we understand the grace of God is when God extends salvation, and not just salvation, when God extends blessing and works good, and we learn that the very favor that God has shown to us is being shown to our enemies, those who have hurt us, those who have committed great evil, the people in our lives that we are slowest to pray for, that we are least interested in calling brothers and sisters in Christ. This is when we realize that we can have very small and closed off views of God's grace, that our hearts are less extravagant than God's. And this is how, this is what Jonah discovered about himself. Chapter four. But it displeased, displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said? Like, God, I'm right here. Look, I knew what would happen. Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah is seemingly complaining that God is like this. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth or a tent for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, so that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. 
But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, which is a way of saying they are morally and spiritually ignorant, and also much cattle. So consider Jonah's attitude here, his disposition. Again, as we've seen, um, these Ninevites are evil and wicked. They are also the enemies of the Israelites. Um, they're rightly deserving of God's judgment. And he longs for them to be brought before God, exposed for who they are, really are, and get their due. And to a degree, there is a right place for these emotions. Right? The Bible gives us language, gives us the words to cry out for justice. We are told that God will bring perfect justice, that God will make all wrongs right, that no injustices in this life will, um, will go unanswered. So there's an appropriate anger that Jonah could have at this point, but the Lord pushes back. Do you do well to be angry? Well, what is he saying here? Well, merely anger, merely being outraged, merely just pressing for justice, 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 in and of itself is not who God is and is not who we are to be. Merely anger, merely outrage, merely pressing for justice is not who God is and is not who we are to be. Uh, and this is extremely relevant in our day, right? All over the place, on all sides of the political spectrum, cultural spectrum, there's an increasing justification of being a justice warrior. That certain causes are so righteous that they not only justify basically any means, they also justify a lack of grace and love and patience and humility and gentleness and fearfulness. But this is not an accurate reflection of God's character. There are times, yes, to be angry at sin, be angry at evil, to cry out for justice. There are times to draw lines, to pray for justice, to call the cops, to press for more just laws and systems. But we have to guard ourselves, guard our hearts when we do this. It is very easy to just ride the wave of righteous outrage that we end up being less kind and merciful than God. It's really easy for righteous indignation over evil to become self-righteous refusal to extend God's grace to our enemies. It doesn't matter how righteous the cause is. There are lots of righteous causes out there. Um, abortion, racism, defense of marriage, government overreach, abuse. There are lots of wrongs and evils out there that 
demand and, and need our action. By all means, fight for what is true and good and right, for what glorifies God and for what brings human flourishing. But watch your heart. Watch your passions. Do we pray for our enemies? Do we desire their repentance and not just a, their exposure and our vindication? And do we have a fear and humility in, a, in the face of evil, knowing that the only reason we stand is because of God's grace? And this is a uniquely Christian temperament, right? Standing in this position where we, on the one hand, can hate and call out what is evil because God does and long for God's justice, and yet at the same time, remain humble. At the same time, remember that we stand by grace and grace alone. We have been changed by grace and grace alone, and that God desires that even our enemies would hear of this grace and turn and repent. And we can really take this further than just enemies. I mean, how many of us really think of certain, you know, how big of a group of enemies do we really have? Uh, this extends even within the church community. Um, whenever we find our hearts to be jealous and bitter and resentful and unforgiving of others, we are in that moment attempting to restrict God's grace to others attempting to keep God from being gracious towards others as he has been to ourselves. Um, like Jonah, we, we can celebrate God's lavish grace to ourselves, but when it's to others, we want it a little bit more measured. How do we respond when God blesses up and lifts and gives good things to others? Perhaps good things that we want for ourselves. When others get promoted or get recognized or or get to experience some, something that we want to experience ourselves? How, how, do, how Can we rejoice with them? Or do we despise God's grace? Whenever we despise God's grace, whenever we feel our hearts being filled with resentment and jealousy and bitterness, and, and we will, we deal with these things. But when we do, it exposes that our heart still believes to some degree that grace is earned. And so the fellowship and the unity of the church, the fellowship and unity of our church, is absolutely dependent on the lavishness, the extravagance, and even the offensiveness of God's grace. Um, and not just believing that in our heads, but actually knowing and feeling and experiencing that in our hearts. And the test for how well we grasp this is when it's extended to others. When it's extended to others who perhaps we have a hard time with, perhaps are our enemies. In these moments, when we struggle with this, we have an opportunity to repent of our small views and our selfish views of God's grace and dig ourselves deeper into the, the freedom and the joy of his lavishness. These are opportunities for us whenever 
whenever we struggle with this. Let's pray.